So we've probably all been in the position where at some point you were trying to explain something to someone, but your words just weren't sufficient. You're trying to explain something that, and how great this thing was, and how amazing this thing was, and you're sitting there just pouring your heart, explaining it to this person. The person's like, yeah, okay. And you're like, no, 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 you're not getting it. Maybe it was like some song you heard, and you had a song, and you loved this song, and so you went to a, a friend, and you're like, hey, this song is incredible. Like, the lyrics are perfect. They describe my situation perfectly. It sounds amazing. It sounds beautiful. It's amazing. And you're just sitting here trying to explain it. And the person's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And you're like, no, 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 you're not getting it. Or some show, and you're like, hey, this show is hilarious. It, the comedic timing is perfect. The acting is incredible. And you're explaining it, and the person's like, yeah, cool, that, that's cool. And you're like, no, you're not getting it. And so what do you do in that moment? You say, hey, just go listen to it for yourself. Go listen to this song. Go, go watch the show. If you'll just watch this with me, I know you're going to be hooked. You need to experience it so that you can fully understand what I'm saying. The thing that comes to my mind, I, I do this on a regular basis, and some of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about because you are the recipients of this conversation. Something that comes up regularly for me is when I'm hanging out with people, especially when I'm hanging out with college students, the topic of relationships and dating comes up. And when it comes up, I chime in and say, hey, have you seen the Ben Stewart dating series? Have you seen his book that he wrote? And usually they're like, no, I've never seen it before. And so I'm like, okay, it is incredible. He does such a good job explaining it. He's, he takes the Bible and he, and he shows us where even though it wasn't explicitly stated, he takes it and he takes truths and he shows us and applies it to today. And it's just an amazing thing. It shaped how I view dating. It's so incredible. It's just great. And the person's like, yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. It's amazing. I'm going to send you the link or I will even buy you the book and I need you to listen to it. I need you to read it. And it's going to be great. It's going to shape how you view dating. And they're like, okay, I got it. I'm going to listen to it. And so I send them the text with the link. And then inevitably what has happened multiple times is six months to two years later, someone will come back to me and say, hey, I just checked out that dating series you sent me, and it's incredible. Like, it shaped the way I think about dating. It's amazing. I'm like, I know. I wish you would have done it six months ago or two years ago. It really would have helped you out. So there's the shameless plug. If you need the link, I'll send it to you, and then two years from now, we can have a conversation. But here's the thing. Sometimes when things are so great, words just don't do it justice, and we just say, hey, come and see it. I want you to experience it so you really can understand it. The reason why I bring that up is tonight we're kicking off our series, and we've titled the series, Come and See. And it's a series where we are walking through John's gospel. We're walk walking through the gospel of John. And the reason for naming it this is there's multiple places in the gospel of John where John is going to say, hey, come and see. Or one of the characters is going to say, hey, come and see. And I really believe that that sentiment in encapsulates what he's talking about. That what he's saying there is saying, hey, I want you to come. I want you to experience something. More importantly, I want you to come. I want you to experience someone. And so he's saying, hey, come and see. And so that's where we're going to be going this school year. We're going to be diving into the gospel of John, working through it verse by verse, and seeing what it is that John wants us to come and see. 
Now, the prologue is what Emily read. Um, the first several verses of John are known as a prologue. It's an introduction to the whole book. And in this introduction, John's going to make clear who it is that he wants us to come and see. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. And so he's describing who it is that he's wanting us to come and to experience. And he tells us explicitly in verse 17, he identifies the person that he's speaking of as Jesus Christ. And so in this prologue, he's describing who the person of Jesus is. And and to be honest with you, what you know if you've studied it before or read it before, or even maybe if this was the first time, what you can tell is it's kind of complex. That it's pretty pretty theological. It really feels like it's kind of up in the clouds and hard to kind of bring down and apply to now. And, And to be honest with you, there's things in this prologue, in these verses that we just read that that really our minds, our human minds with our limited understanding can't fully wrap our brains around. Like there's things that we will not be able to fully comprehend because of the complexity of it. But even though it's complex, it's also extremely simple. What I believe is that as we walk through these verses and we talk about them at night, we're going to boil it down and see some very, very clear and simple truths that we can understand. So even though we can't fully understand the complexities of it, we can gain understanding. And it's important that we do embrace these simplicities and we do do, uh, understand them and bring them uh, to the ground to where we can understand them. And and the tendency is because it's so so, um, simple, there's going to be a tension for some of you to be like, yeah, I get it. I know it. I've heard it before. I'm not worried about it. There's going to be a a tension within you that's going to say, let me just check out. This is not a big deal. I've already got it. And I want to encourage you to fight this tension because it is extremely, extremely important that we understand what he's trying to get at here. Because here's the truth. Our theology drives our activity. What you believe, more specifically, who you believe in and what you believe about God will shape what you do. What you believe about God will shape how you think, it will shape your desires, and it will shape how you speak and what you do. And so it is so important that we grasp these truths because these truths are foundational. And, And what you believe in matters. It's important that we understand the who that John is talking about here. There are plenty of people across this earth that would say that they believe in Jesus but they believe wrongly about Jesus, right? If someone were to come to you, for those of you who do know me, and, and someone were to come to you and say, hey, I know Ryan. Ryan, he's the college pastor at Northway. You're like, yeah, I know him. And they start describing, like, yeah, he's like 5'2", he's redheaded with freckles. You're like, okay, okay, no, we're not talking about the same Ryan there. Like, we use some of the same language and, and a similar identifier, but that is not the Ryan that I know. That is not the real Ryan. See, here's the thing. There's so many people that have done that with Jesus. They get some things right, but they, in reality, miss some very foundational truths about who he is as a person. And these truths found in these verses are core to what we believe. You you cannot be Christian and not believe the truths that we're going to talk about tonight. Like, there's certain things in the Bible that, that we would call, like, secondary issues that we can disagree on and debate and have strong opinions on, but at the end of the day, we'll see each other in heaven and we'll talk about them then. But there's certain truths that you can't just toss out. 
It's like if they were, we were playing Jenga, you know, there's certain blocks you can pull out and it still stands. This is not one of those blocks. If you throw out these truths that are talked about in this passage, it's like taking the table out from underneath it. It all crumbles apart. So I want to encourage you, those these truths are simple, they are extremely important. And so I want to encourage you to lean into this tonight and know that not only do they shape ultimate truth, they shape daily truth for us as well. And so just to give us a little bit of a map of where we're going, we are uh, going to walk through the structure of this passage. And the way it's structured is in what's called a chiasm. It's come from, that word comes from the Greek word or letter chi, which is an X. And this is a type of, of um, literary structure that's found all throughout the Bible. And essentially what it means is the first part corresponds with the last part, and the second part with the second to last, and so on, until it builds to the middle, which is the main emphasis. It's like the main and driving point. And so this is what it will look like for us uh, tonight. A, so verses 1 through 5, will correspond with verses 16 through 18. They kind of go together. They're not exactly repeated, but they go with the same idea. And then B, verses 6 through 8, goes with verse 15. And then C, 9 through 11, goes with 14. And then finally, D, this is the emphasis. This is the hinge of it all. This is the driving point of the passage, verses 12 through 13. And, and I just show you that. So this is how we're going to walk through it. With, this is the map of where we're going tonight. We're going to go to A, B, C, and D. And I didn't want us to be in A and be talking about the first few verses and then mention verse 18. You'd be like, what's going on? Is Ryan crazy? Like, is he losing it? This is the path that we're going to go. And we're going to walk through these verses and try to gain understanding so we can make something that's super complex and bring it down in, into a simple truths that are so, so important. So just starting off, let's look at A, verses 1 through 5 and verse 16 through 18. The, the big idea for this section is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It starts off there and it says, in the beginning. And for many of you, that triggers something. You, you think, it reminds you of something. And what you're thinking of is the very beginning of your Bible. Where in Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John starts out his description. He starts off talking about the person of Jesus by saying, hey, in the very beginning, before all things were, Jesus was. He was there. And so it says, in the beginning was the word. The word there, you're like, okay, why didn't he call him Jesus there? He's using this as a descriptor, and this is going to connect with several different audiences. The word there is the Greek word logos, and when he says this, the Jewish audience that were reading this or, and hearing this, they would be thinking back of God's spoken word that has power, that has creative abilities, that is sustaining. But then even for his Greek hearers, it would have registered with them because they saw this logos and different philosophies will talk about how it's an agent of creation, it's a bridge between the, the spiritual world and the material world, it's this kind of mystical thing. And so when he says, in the beginning was the word, they're like, okay, yeah, I get it. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He says, Jesus was there with God in the beginning. And, and the literal translation would be, in the beginning, he was towards God. He was facing God. And so what he's showing there is God and Jesus have an intimate relationship. There's a very personal connection there between the two of them. Jesus was there. The word was there in the beginning. 
But then he makes a statement that just is mind-blowing. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He claims Jesus to be deity. He says God and Jesus are one. So there's this distinction there. There's this uniqueness. They're, they're both there because God's there and Jesus is with him, but then there's also this oneness between the two. He says he was, all things were created through him. In Colossians 1, it's going to talk about how he's the very agent of creation, that through Jesus, all things were created, and all things were created for Jesus, that he's the sustaining force in all of creation. And so John is making a bold claim here that not only was Jesus with God, but Jesus was God. And this is where our categories start to kind of break down. That's, that's how Tim Mackey says it at the Bible Project. Our categories, we don't really have one for this, but this is where we kind of build out part of our concept of the Trinity. The Trinity says that God is three in one, that he is three persons with one being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are three distinct and unique persons that all exist within one being. We worship one God, and within him there's no confusion, there's no contradiction. And so again, it kind of falls short. We can't fully wrap our brains around it, but it is important that we do have some understanding to say, hey, God is one, he is three in one, he is three persons, one being, Jesus is God. And it says he is life. It describes him as light in verses four and five, that he is the, the thing that breathes life into things, that he is a light that, uh, that is a beacon. And he talks about darkness in this passage. And oftentimes darkness is used to talk about the human condition. Darkness is used to talk about the wickedness of mankind. See, back in Genesis 3, when, after God had created all things and he lived in a relationship with mankind, mankind believed a lie. Mankind believed that God was holding out on them, and so they disobeyed them and said, hey, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to forge my own path. So it began with bad theology. It began with believing a lie about God, and it led to the action of sin, and this sin spiraled mankind into darkness, into brokenness, into wickedness. And we don't have to look far to see this. Like you can see all on the headlines, you can see on social media, you can see darkness everywhere. You can see darkness in small cases, you can see darkness that will just break your heart. But you don't have to look far out to find it either. You can look in your own life. You see the brokenness in your family. You see hurt done to you by your friends, by people who you thought cared for you. But you also see broken, brokenness in a more personal way. You see brokenness when you look in the mirror. You see the dark parts of your heart that you don't want anyone else to see. You see the dark things that you have done that no one else really knows you've done. You see the dark things that you have said and thought, and you're honestly quite ashamed of that. You see darkness even as you battle anxiety and you battle insecurity and you battle just the the lack of peace that you have in life, you just kind of feel the sense of darkness in your life. See, we don't have to look far to see the darkness of this world. But what he tells us in this passage is that darkness cannot overcome the light. 
See, darkness is the absence of light, and light penetrates the darkness, and the light wins every single time. Darkness cannot overcome the light. And so what he's aiming to do in this section is he's aiming to give us a magnified view about who Jesus is. He's wanting us to see the weightiness of the person of Jesus. He says, this Jesus is God. He was there from the beginning. He was the agent of creation. He's sustaining and holding all things together. He's the reason you have breath right now. This Jesus is God, and that is a major thing. And when you think about him in this way, it should make you feel very, very small. Like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, like looking into the night sky, it should make you feel very small when you think of the magnitude and the weight of who Jesus is. In verse 18, he makes this comment saying that no one has seen God except for the one who's by his side, except for Jesus. And he, Jesus, has made him known to us. How? How is this possible? That's where we're going to move to to letter B. Moving to letter B, it's verses 6 through 8, and it's uh, verse 15, and it's John prepared the way. John prepared the way. See, there's a movement from God from the very beginning in Genesis 3, that when mankind rebelled and rejected him, and he cast them out of his garden, you would think that the book would end quickly. You would think that God would walk away and say, okay, if that's what you want, I'm done. You go and you spiral into your darkness. But that's not what we see happen. God promises to redeem his people. He promises to crush the head of the evil one. And he starts moving towards his people. He starts coming towards them. He he speaks to them and calls them out. He, He calls a man named Abraham. He calls Moses. He he identifies a people. He dwells among them in the tabernacle and then the temple. He sends prophets and messengers to proclaim his word to them, saying, hey, turn back to God, turn from your evil ways, and he will be gracious towards you. To proclaim how to follow him and to walk in obedience to him, he sends these messengers, and in these messengers he says, hey, he will redeem us. He's going to send this Messiah, this Savior, to redeem us all. And so God begins the movement towards Uh, his people. And as he moves towards his people, the prophets come, prophets come, and the people keep rejecting his lights. They keep rejecting his messages, rejecting his people. And ultimately, they had spiraled so far into wickedness that God's own chosen people were so twisted and wicked that they were even practicing child sacrifice. And he said, okay. And he sent them into exile. And when they went into exile, you thought it was done. In fact, from that point on, after all the prophets, after these messages, there's a point of silence of about 400 years before we ever get another word from God. It seemed as though he was done, that he was done with his people that he had given up and he was moving away from them until John stepped onto the scene. And this isn't John uh, who wrote the gospel, the disciple of Jesus. This is John who you probably know better as John the Baptist. And John who was prophesied back from the other prophets, steps onto the scene and says, hey, make straight a path for the Lord. Repent, turn from your sins. Repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming. He is moving towards and he is here. 
And John, uh, the author, makes a distinction. He says, by the way, this John, he wasn't the light itself, but he was a witness of the light. There was some confusion about who the John the Baptist was. Like, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Who is he? And so John just wants to be clear throughout his gospel. He says, hey, by the way, he's not the light. He's just the one witnessing about the light. And so he says, hey, the movement of God is continuing, and the movement of God is here. God is seeking to do something. And that brings us to see verses 9 through 11 and verse 14. It says, Jesus became a man. Jesus became a man. Light came into the world. It gives us imagery back again of Genesis that after he created the heavens, the earth, the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the earth. And so he spoke and said, let there be light, and light penetrated the darkness. And here we are in the chaos of a dark and broken world. And God spoke his final word, the light. Jesus stepped down into his broken creation, into the darkness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the culmination of God's movement, which began in Genesis 3. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says this. It says, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus stepped down into this world. Jesus became a man. And again, this is a part of the divine mystery. We can't fully comprehend it, but Jesus, who's fully God, stepped down to earth and became fully man. He's truly God and truly man. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 8, is called the Christ hymn, and it's a beautiful hymn about Jesus. And it talks about how he didn't count equality of God or with God as something to be clung to. And so he stepped down. He humbled himself. He left glory. He became a man. He took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. That when he stepped down, though, we need to be clear, he didn't stop being God. He became man. He embraced human limitations, but he still maintained his deity. He doesn't just stop being God when he does this. He's fully God and fully man. The example that comes to my mind, and, and all examples do fall short, so just know that, but the example that comes to my mind is when I'm playing sports, like, I'm going to limit myself so the game will actually be fun and we can have fun and have a close game. Now, I don't let him win because there's no fun in that, but it's at least a good game. And so we play, I subject myself to limitations, but here's the thing. I'm still who I am. Like, I'm still grown. I'm still stronger. I'm still faster. I still know more than he does, but I've allowed myself to be limited so we can play the game. See, Jesus, as God, stepped down into his creation and became fully a man, which meant that he limited himself of his deity, but he did not lose his deity. He is still God, but he's accepted and embraced and subjected himself to the limitations that come with being a human. And so uh, we'll see this throughout John. We'll see this play out where we see Jesus as, as God, but also distinct from God, where he's praying to God the Father, and we see his humanity very clearly. But then we're also going to see where he acts as God and has, has power as well, and we see the complexity of it. But, but here's the point. Here's, here's, here's what's really important for us. This is what we can grasp. The humanity of Jesus, 
means that he identifies with us and us with him. Because he subjected himself to the limitations of becoming man, we can identify with who he is because he understands the human experience. That means he got sick. That means when he stubbed his toe on the corner of a desk, it hurt and there were tears. He felt pain. There were limitations to what he could do as a human. He subjected himself. He understood the human experience and all that goes in it. So you do not have a God that is distant. You have a God who knows all too well the limitations of what it means to be human. And as he did this, as he became a man, he was the embodiment of God. What it's going to tell us is that he makes God known to us through dwelling among us. That humanity has seen God's glory because we've seen Jesus. God stepped into his creation, but the creation didn't accept him. The creation rejected him. And here we see the great irony that that God created us in his image, that we are his very image bearers. Yet when he stepped down into earth, his own image bearers didn't recognize the one that they were created in the image of. And we rejected God. In fact, the darkness rejected the light and crucified him on a cross. And it's really an astonishing, wondrous thing that, that Jesus would leave glory and become a man just to be rejected by his creation, just so he could suffer and feel the pain and be crucified on the cross and to die. It is a wondrous thing that he would do this because here's the thing, there's not a soul in here that would do that. I mean, I don't like inconveniencing myself for anything. I don't like it when Sarah says to get something across the room when I'm sitting on the couch. So much less am I going to leave glory and all the splendor of it and come down and become a man just so I could suffer and die at the hands of my creation. So it pleads the question, why? Why would Jesus do this? And that's where we get to the emphasis of it all in this letter D. And it's verses 12 through 13. And it says this. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, if left in darkness, we would surely die. We've offended a holy and righteous God, and we deserve the fullness of that judgment. If left in darkness, There is no hope. But light stepped down into the darkness. Jesus became a man, and when Jesus entered this earth, he started spreading his light everywhere. With all who encountered him, he he would heal the sick. He would bring light there. He would give sight to the blind. He would speak with clarity and with truth unlike any had ever heard before. He brought light and life wherever he went. But again, the darkness didn't want it. The darkness rejected the light and crucified him on the cross, though he was sinless. And it seemed as though the darkness had snuffed out the light. But we know that's not the end of the story. See, they they took his lifeless body and they put him in a tomb. And they rolled a stone over the face of that tomb and encapsulated him into full darkness. But then on the third day, there was a great earthquake. 
the stone was jarred free and light penetrated into that dark tomb, but then light also burst out of that tomb into a dark world, proclaiming hope, knowing that he had ultimately defeated darkness, that light had overcome the darkness, light had won the final victory. Jesus had won the victory on our behalf. And what John promises is that for those who have received this light, those who have believed in his name, which means believing in his person, the person of Jesus, and believing in his work, that they have life. See, belief there, it, ca- it carries the connotation of not just intellectual belief, but it's, it's intellectual, but it's also trusting. It's believing and trusting in the person of Jesus. He says, when that happens, when someone says, hey, I'm in darkness and I need light, and they embrace and trust Jesus with that light, what happens is those who believe become children of God. They have the right to become children of God. Jesus left, left heaven and came and stepped down into earth, and you would think it would, that he would bring judgment with him, but instead of judgment, he brought grace. And when we turn to him, we receive life. We who, what Ephesians would say, were dead in our sins, were alienated from God, were children of wrath, now become children of of God. We have new life and we're born again. Uh, I love the, the imagery that adoption brings. That I know that many of you know that Pastor Kevin and uh, his wife Katie, several years ago, they adopted two uh, little children, a little boy and a little girl. And what's so beautiful about it is if you go and you ask Pastor Kevin or Katie how many kids you have, They're not going to say, we've got two biological and two adopted. No, they say, we've got four kids. That they are ours just as much as the first two were ours. That when they adopted them, it changed their name. It changed their reality. And one day when when Kevin and Katie are gone and God has called them home, that those two children who were adopted received the same exact inheritance as the biological kids because they are their children. That's the picture of what happens to the follower of Jesus. That we were dead in sins and children of wrath, but when we embrace Christ, our identity changes. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of the Most High King. And as his children, Galatians says that we become heirs to a kingdom. That we share in rich inheritance that as his children, we receive eternal security that we cannot be stripped from the hand of our good father through being ransomed by the blood of Christ, that we receive a Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a promise that we will one day dwell with him forever and ever and ever. Nothing can change that reality. We who had no peace receive peace. We who had no joy receive joy. We who were discontent are content because of the spirit that lives within us. Through Jesus, we can know the Father and we receive the Spirit. And that is the emphasis of what John's trying to get across. It's not just the emphasis of this passage, it's actually the emphasis of his entire book. If you turn over to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John states his purpose. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by leaving, you may have life in his name. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to believe and trust in the person of Jesus, the son of God, so that we may receive life. This is what John wants us to come and see. That's our big idea of what he wants to see is that Jesus is God and he became a man that we may know God and become children of God. That's what he's inviting us into. Now, I know inevitably as we've taught through this, like we said, even though I warned you beforehand, there's some of you who are like, yeah, get it. That's simple. And, and it's kind of numbing to you. You're like, eh, I get it. I understand. But don't let the simplicity of these truths lead you to be cold and numb. The God of creation who spoke the universe into existence, who has spun galaxies into existence, who has numbered the stars, who has numbered the grains of sand on this earth, who points and directs the winds in the way that they should go, who is sustaining the life of all things and holding all things together, that is the God that we have offended. That's the God that you have offended. But this same God is the same God that created you, that knit you together in your, woman's, in your mother's womb. It's the same God that, that sends his wind and to give you breath and to give you life. It's the same God that has numbered the number of hairs on your head. It's the same God that though you rebelled against him, he has been moving towards you. It's the same God that left his throne of glory to come down and to take on humanity so he could suffer and die just to reconcile you. This is the God that we're talking about. And so may these truths, however simple they may be, may they never lead us to be cold and numb to this gospel. When we dwell on the magnitude of who Jesus is and the weight of his person. And then we see his personal nature and the way he's moved towards us. It should stir in our hearts a fire and a passion to love him more, to pursue after him, to walk in obedience. It should stir within us a great desire to see this dark world come to know him and to take the light of Jesus and proclaim it into the darkness so that the world may know of the hope that we have through him. This truth should set us a, a passion deep within us. There's others of you and in, in you are followers of Jesus, but if you are honest, you say, yeah, I've been anxious. My heart has been unsettled. This is a new season for me and things are changing and I don't really know I'm off at school for the first time or, or I'm about to graduate and I don't know what I'm gonna do. And you've been stressed, you've been anxious. There's some dynamics with your friendships and it's, it's bothering you and you're just unsettled altogether. Set your mind on these truths. Let these simple truths wash over you. See and feel the weight and the magnitude of who Jesus is, that he is God and he is so big that he's controlling all things, he's sustaining all things, that he's sovereign over all things. There's, there's not a single thing that's outside the scope of his sovereignty. You might not know what your next job is, but it's not gonna take him by surprise. 
You might not know what things are going to be like, but there's nothing that takes him off guard. He is sovereign over all that. Feel the weight of his sovereignty and then see the truth that not only is he sovereign, but he loves you. He cares you. He's promised to work things for your good and for his glory. Sit with the weight of these truths and let these truths, let peace wash over you. And then tonight, when you lay down your head, let it let you sleep like a baby because you're resting in the sovereignty of who God is. And there's yet even some of you, I know that there's some of you in this room that are walking in darkness. You've never turned from your sin and turned from the darkness and embraced the light of Jesus. And after hearing the truths of God, and hearing about his character and hearing and thinking about your, your position before him, you feel the weight of that darkness closing in on you. And you, you're tired of sitting in this darkness. Tonight, my, my call for you is the same, is to come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See the magnitude and the weight of the person of Jesus, the God of whom you've offended, but see his personal nature, that he has moved towards you. He's lavished grace upon grace on you. Turn from your sins. Trust in the person of Jesus. Be made anew. Be given a new identity. Leave from becoming a child of wrath and, and become a child of God. And become a rich heir to a royal kingdom. That's my hope for us. I'm, I'm excited for the semester. I'm excited for us as we dive in to the gospel of John and learn more about the character of God and learn more about the person of Jesus and see how he indeed does change everything for us.